People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. The Reverend Canon Jan Naylor Cope was appointed provost of the Washington National Cathedral in 2015. As provost, she oversees the cathedral's development department and works closely with the dean and the cathedral's leadership on its strategic vision, ministry, and mission. She was formerly associate rector at St. David's Church in Washington, D.C., and before that, she was deputy director of presidential personnel in the White House under the 41st president of the United States. So, Full disclosure, not only do I know Jan because she worked for my dad, but the National Cathedral is my parish. Trisha has attended some of the amazing programs at the cathedral, and so it's both of our pleasures to welcome Jan Cope to HealthGig. Welcome, Jan. I'm delighted to be here, honored to be here. So excited to have you with us. Yes, we are. And Tricia knows what a huge fan I am of yours and the National Cathedral, which is really a national treasure. So we're excited today to do a little deep dive into what's going on there and how you've pivoted during COVID. But first, full disclosure, which I mentioned in the introduction, we know each other well because you worked for my dad, you are a Texan. And so Tell everybody else about your Texas roots and your public service and how you landed at the National Cathedral. Well, you're sweet. I will tell you and remind you, I worked for your mother first. So she got me in good shape for working with your dad. <laughs> what did you do for Mrs. Bush? Fresh out of college, but was a personal assistant. And I literally worked out of Dora's father's office in their house. Oh, you're kidding. When brother George W. Bush was running for Congress in West Texas. Wow. 1978. So I cut my teeth there. But let me fast forward to get there as well. <laughs> uh, I was born in Texas and raised in a teeny weeny little town called Refurio which had a whopping population of about 3,000 at its peak. Dora may not know this piece, but my first introduction to her family came when I was eight years old, and her father was running for Senate in Texas, and he came to literally stand on a soapbox to pitch this little town on why he would wow. make a great U.S. senator. <laughs> and I remember at the time when my family and I were driving away from the event, my father said famously, he was so impressed. He said, watch that man. Someday he's going to be president oh. of the United States. <laughs> wow. The Bush family was on my radar screen from a very early age. Part of the Washington piece came because I was selected at age 16 to participate in the presidential classroom for young Americans, which was a program started in the Johnson administration, sort of like close-up, that would bring high school students together in Washington to learn how government worked, or at least how it was allegedly working in our government books. It was during Watergate, 
And it was such an impressionable time for me. It was the very first time I'd ever been on a commercial airplane. I mean, you know, it was extraordinary. And I fell in love with Washington then. It's such a beautiful city. I made a vow like one does when they're like 16, that someday I would come back to Washington and do public service. I just thought it was such an important and noble thing. And so I aspired to that at age 16. Suffice it to say, I went on to college, Trinity University in San Antonio. And after I graduated, I moved to Houston. George Herbert Walker Bush was sweet enough to let me come to visit with him. I still can't believe I had the nerve to write him a note to ask him if I could, because I knew he was going to run for president and I wanted to be a part of that. And he very nicely told me that he wasn't staffing up at that point in time, but his friend Jim Baker was running for attorney general and he thought maybe he could use some help. That got me launched politically. I was hired to work on the Baker campaign. I did fundraising and it worked out. Don Rhodes called me and said that Mrs. Bush needed some help. And so in the mornings, I worked with Mrs. Bush. I hand addressed the Christmas card list for the Bush family. It took me all summer. It was <laughs> something else. And then I worked full time on the Baker campaign and couldn't have worked for more honorable, inspiring people. So that was really my beginning in politics. Now, I will say that both Jim Baker and Doro's brother lost, but that had nothing to do with me. Uh, on those campaigns. I moved to Austin, stayed in political fundraising. And then when President Reagan and Vice President Bush were elected, I knew that was my time to go to Washington and try to engage in public service. My first foray was helping to put together the very first black tie and boots inaugural ball um, <laughs> with the Texas State Society. I did political fundraising when I first came to Washington. And then my first public service was with the National Endowment for the Arts, where I was a Reagan Bush appointee and worked on public-private partnerships. So got the private sector to join with us in large-scale arts projects. And then from there, I worked for a brief time with a consulting firm. And then when President Bush won election, had one of the great experiences of my life, being invited to work on his staff in the White House, which I proudly did for four years as Deputy Director of Presidential Personnel. During that time, I was dating my now husband, John Cope. We can't say it was a whirlwind romance that lasted throughout my White House years. And someone had tipped off the president that we were getting serious, but John had not proposed at that point. And I remember the president asking me if, you know, I would like him to call John and talk about it. I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's necessary. Poor John was terrified. Uh, he did propose. We did get married. And then when I left the White House, I started my own executive recruiting firm, which I did until I felt the call to ordain ministry. And I'm happy to talk more about that, but there's a story in that calling too. I don't want to spend this whole time talking about me. No, but we want to hear about that. So tell us the call. Yeah. I'd always been really involved in church. Nothing was new about that. 
And at the time, I was very actively involved at St. John's Lafayette Square was my home church. My business was going well. I was on nonprofit boards and corporate boards and life was swimming along. And then out of nowhere, I learned I had breast cancer. I don't think one can go through something like that without being a little more intentional about their prayer life. When I was receiving radiation treatment, you know, you basically are in a hospital gown in a waiting room with other people waiting for their 15 minutes or whatever of radiation. And it was so strange because, you know, I was just sitting there reading a book or whatever, waiting for my turn. But people started coming over to me and sitting next to me from across the room. I mean, I didn't know these people. And they said, you seem so calm and I'm terrified. Can you tell me, how can you be so calm? They wanted to know how I could be peaceful in the midst of a life-threatening illness. And that continued to happen so much. It was just strange. I wasn't wearing a sandwich board that said, come come talk to me. (laughs) And so I continued to pray about it and ask God, you know, what's that about? And with whatever life I still have, you know, in my earthly life, how do you want me to live it? I went on a silent retreat when I finished my radiation treatment and very distinctly sensed in my spirit, God saying, I have more for you to do. Being a little bit irreverent, I was in my conversation with God in my spirit. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you so much for that. But could you be a little more specific? (laughs) Or it's a pretty broad category. And with more prayer and silent prayer and lots of walks, I sensed God calling me to ordain ministry. I pursued that, became an Episcopal priest, initially served at St. David's Church, not very far from the cathedral, actually. When there was an opening at the cathedral for the vicar, I was asked if I'd like to be considered. And of course, who wouldn't? And I said, you know, sure, I'd be honored. It was a competitive process, and God was gracious, and I was selected. So that's how I got here. And how long ago was that? Ten years, Tricia. I came initially as vicar. A lot of people don't know this about the cathedral. But it wasn't until about 12 years ago or so that a resident congregation was formalized. People have been worshiping at the cathedral for years, but there wasn't a formalized congregation. The cathedral was created by an act of Congress in the late 1800s. When Dean Sam Lloyd came to the cathedral, he really wanted to formalize a worshiping, serving, praying community of faith at the heart of the cathedral. I so it wouldn't know be that. a museum that we right. were you know, an active right. faith community. And so I proudly did that for five years. And then five years ago was asked to take on the role of provost. I was just going to say, if you could tell me what the vicar's role is and what is the provost role. We have such strange titles in the Episcopal Church. I was, as vicar, essentially the shepherd of the resident flock, sort of like a senior pastor or the rector or depending on your denomination. And so my job was to take what was very much an embryonic congregation and grow it. Grow it not just numerically, but in service, in prayer, in outreach. 
in pastoral care, things that weren't in place because it was so new. In that time, God blessed us so much. We grew like 500 members. There was huge growth. And then I was asked to take on, five years ago, the role of provost. I still do weddings and funerals and preach and teach and do all of those things. But my job is really more strategic, looking at the longer-term ministry and mission of the cathedral and before the pandemic to really be an external face of the cathedral. I did a lot of traveling and guest preaching and speaking and listening to what the broader community was looking for in a national cathedral. How could we be a better resource for people all across the country? What a path. Wow. Yeah, an amazing path. I have to say, and Tricia knows this, that I'm a proud member of that congregation. Every Sunday before COVID, we welcome people from all over the country and all over the world, really. And yet there is this warmth, there is this community within this larger entity, which you might not think that could happen, but it really is. And it's a really nice, tight, welcoming because everyone's welcome at the cathedral, which is one of the beautiful things about it, community. But the cathedral really is, as I said earlier, a national treasure. And people think of it as almost like a national monument, but there's a lot that goes on there. And I don't think most people are aware of the many, many, many things that go on there. So I just would love to talk about some of the things and how you've had to pivot during this pandemic. I'm delighted to talk about that, and I hope I won't exhaust myself, much less all of your listeners, with the variety of things we do. Doro talked about our worship, and I think that most people, if they're not very familiar with the cathedral, think of it at monumental moments, like presidential funerals or presidential inaugural prayer services. We are that for our country, but we're so much more. We come together as a nation for times of celebration and times of mourning and times of crisis. Doro's brother reached out to us as president to hold a national service just a few days after 9-11, for example. We as a nation gathered at that pivotal moment. But on a day-by-day, week-by-week sort of basis, we are very much, even with the doors closed, a pretty active place. Typically on a Sunday, and let's say it's during spring when all the tourists are here for the cherry blossoms and kids are on spring break, etc., just to give you a feel, we might have a thousand people in worship. And when the pandemic happened and we really pivoted, our numbers went to like 15,000 streaming live. Easter last year, when we had our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, who, if he wasn't famous before, certainly became famous after preaching at Meghan and Harry's royal wedding. (laughs) Um, For Easter last year, 50,000 people signed on live. Initially, it crashed our system. But by the time that other people had caught up with that service after the fact, we estimate that about a million people experienced Easter with the cathedral. That's continued to this day. We offer virtual morning prayer every morning. About 4,000 people participate in that, particularly during this COVID time when people need some sort of grounding. It's been such a challenging and difficult year. 
On Sundays, we average about 33,000 people will pick up our Sunday service, some live, some picking it up after the fact. We offer concerts. The next concert coming up, of course, will be virtual as well, and that'll be on Palm Sunday. We offer programs that speak to the issues of our day. Back in the fall, we welcomed Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins talking about COVID and where we were, and that was back in the fall. 15,000 people streamed that live. Coming up soon, and we just made an important announcement yesterday that John Meacham has been appointed our new canon historian. And on the 23rd of March, he'll be offering a program on John Lewis and the legacy of John Lewis, who was the subject of his most recent book. He'll be in conversation with two prior chiefs of staff of Congressman Lewis. We do tours. So many people come to see this place. The gargoyles are popular. I spent half my time when I'm outside pointing out where Darth Vader gargoyle (laughs) is, but we're doing those tours virtually now. We do community outreach. During the pandemic, we've been a site periodically with the Red Cross for blood drives because that's such a huge need. We reach out to the city in so many different ways, so that's an active part of what we do. We teach. We offer courses on Bible study on all sorts of things, and of course, are actively involved in social justice issues, particularly around race, immigration, and so many other LGBTQ issues that are such a part of our society. I could go on, but I'm going to leave it there because that's a lot. It's so true. I mean, it's a vibrant living place is really what you're telling us, right? It's not this museum that we all kind of see, but rather a million people are participating in your Easter services. That's just incredible. Really incredible. One of the things that's going on now that I would encourage everyone to go onto the cathedral website to see is the beautiful dove exhibit. Tell us about that. Just before the end of the year, we worked with a German artist for an installation of over 2,000 origami doves that are suspended not quite from the ceiling of the cathedral. There's a platform area that they're suspended from symbolizing peace. They're a little under wraps at this point, but they will be certainly displayed come Pentecost when we celebrate the Holy Spirit. And we are so hopeful as a symbol of peace, et cetera, that as restrictions lift a little bit after more and more people are vaccinated, that we'll be able to start small tours These doves have been all around the world. They've been at Salisbury Cathedral and other places. And we were just delighted to be able to have a partnership with this German artist. The cathedral has over time been a place for different sorts of visual art installations, as well as obviously the very vibrant music program that we offer. One of the things, and Tricia, you couldn't come with me. And you were so disappointed, but I brought your sister, Kathy. (laughs) I was just thinking that. To the event where the cathedral is open to the public and it's lit in beautiful colors. I can't wait till COVID's over and we can reinstate that over there. What was the purpose behind that? You may have seen, if you follow any of our social media, we've been using lights a lot. During COVID, we'll project things on the facade of the cathedral 
giving shout outs to frontline workers, et cetera, et cetera. But inside the cathedral, we started this programming a few years ago where January is typically a slow month for us with visitors. It's a week-long program we call Seeing Deeper when we remove all the chairs out of the cathedral. So it's totally an open space. One night, but it's turned so popular, we've had to do like two nights where it's just colored lights inside the cathedral, maybe with meditative music. Some people lay down on the floor. Some people prop up in a corner and meditate. People just experience the sacredness in the spirituality of the space itself and experience what I would call something larger than themselves in a way that's meaningful to them. But during that week, we do yoga in the cathedral. We've had picnics for the neighborhood or anybody for that matter. And movie night, if you want to bring your kids. A labyrinth. A labyrinth. The majesty of the National Cathedral is one of the things that makes me feel closer to God. I attended Beauvoir and National Cathedral School. And so I had the cathedral as part of my school experience. And I feel so lucky because I feel like the cathedral is inside me in a way. And I enter that building and I think many people feel that way. How do you find people's reaction to the cathedral or their experiences? How does that affect their faith? Thank you for the question, Doro. I mean, one of the things I love to witness is when people walk into that space for the very first time, and you can just see their jaws drop and their eyes get wide, and they are just overwhelmed by the awe and the sheer beauty of the place. And of course, Gothic architecture was designed to do exactly that with these soaring high ceilings to lift one's spirits up. People experience it in so many different ways, but I find that when people come in the first time, they're really sort of speechless. They might have been arguing with a family member or snarky when they come in and they walk in and it takes their breath away. Some people, even in the midst of this huge space, will find very intimate, tucked away spots where they can give better expression to what they've just experienced, to have a more intimate and quiet experience of God. We just feel so blessed and feel very much that we're the stewards of this national treasure. And as you speak about, Doro, your own experiences of attending Beauvoir and National Cathedral School, I will confess to you that a few small classes from the schools have come in to see the dubs, and the kids are crazy about the exhibition. Another beautiful thing about that is depending on what time of day you come, the light comes streaming through the stained glass windows, and you can watch the different colored light dance on those doves and on the walls, and it's really quite magical. You know, I have to pinch myself that I have the privilege of serving here. You know, as you know, Dora and I are all about health and educating people on how to take better care of themselves, mind, body, and spirit. And so if you could just spend a minute on how would you define a healthy spiritual practice? And, you know, I have to say what came up for me when you said that people were attracted to you during your breast cancer situation 
I thought, oh, at times I just wish I could be that person. At times, sometimes God seems far away from me, you know? And so if you could just talk about that, that would be awesome. I'd be honored to do that. I think one of the key words you said was practice. I have found with so many people I've talked to in the past year in particular, how important it is to have some sort of discipline and routine. I think initially people felt so unmoored because everything that seemed a normal routine and rhythm in their lives was turned on its head. I can tell you what grounds me. It will be different for, you know, everyone. But I start my day in the quiet and in the dark, being still. I do morning prayer. That's one of the morning offices in my denomination and say my prayers. And then in keeping with your body part of it, I go for a walk every morning after I finish my prayers. I'm not plugged into music or if I were paying more attention, of course, I would be listening to your podcasts on my walk, but I don't listen to anything. That allows me to listen for God. It's just a quiet time for me that combines movement and what's good for my body being good for my mind and my spirit. It's often the time, too, when I get answers to things that are troubling me or puzzling me. It's where I get bits that will make their way into a sermon. And there's a wonderful expression for that, and and certainly one that has been true for me. It's called Salvatore Ambulando, which means it is solved by walking. Mm -hmm. I think that in this time, we're all going to have good days and bad days. That's life, pre-COVID, in COVID, post-COVID. But I think that the important thing is to remember those things that keep you grounded and do those faithfully. That's actually really good advice because you're right. Everything is just seemed like it's upside down. And so you're looking to sort of have a routine and then keep that connection with God. I think what you're saying is that there's not silence or stillness. It is almost impossible to hear our higher power. Yeah. We like to fill our time with noise. I mean, oh, I have free time. So I'm going to put my ear pods in and listen to a podcast, which I'm not discouraging people (laughs) to listen to our podcast, but we do have a tendency to fill the time with, I'm going to watch this Netflix and then, then I'm going to listen to this podcast while I'm cooking. How can you hear God in all the noise and rush in life? When I was going through the ordination process, I had a spiritual director, which is one of the prerequisites, and she asked me about my prayer life. You know, I have to confess, confession is good for the soul. I heard that somewhere (laughs) that I felt pretty good about my prayer life. I prayed for this person and that person and these issues and those issues, and I was very busy lifting things up to God. She smiled at me and she said, Jan, you get an A plus for petition, (laughs) asking on behalf of other people and on, you know, racism (laughs) and the pandemic or whatever it was, you know, she said, you're not carving out any time to listen. That's not a conversation. That's a monologue. And so that stuck with me. You have to be still and quiet to get some sort of response and direction. 
And I know meditation is one of the things that you all advise for people. And that's so important because it is in those times that we get some sort of a conversation back. And like you said, you know, you find your meditation time walking. I mean, there's so many different ways to be mindful and be still and be quiet. But one of the things, and Trisha knows this, about Jan is she is the most amazing preacher. She'll get up there at the pulpit. She won't have her notes or anything. Maybe she'll have a few notes. And she just speaks without an um and an awe and a like. I mean, she (laughs) just says it right out in the most beautiful fashion. So how do you prepare your sermons, which are amazing? And how does that process go? I'm just full of confessions today. So in (laughs) seminary, you're taught to preach with a manuscript. And in large measure, that's to organize your thoughts, but it also, frankly, gives a professor something to grade. And I teach advanced preaching at Wesley Seminary in the summers, and I confess they have to send me a manuscript. So I was taught that way, but one of my homiletics professors said, Jan, you're never going to have problems with content, but you know your delivery is not very compelling. I'm soft-spoken. And... I knew that if I stuck to a manuscript, I obviously don't read very compellingly. My husband, John, really pushed me and said, you have this inside you, what you want to say, what you want to convey. Don't use notes. Just say it. So my preparation is that I begin praying about the scriptures appointed for the next time I'm going to preach as soon as I finish the last sermon. And I pray about those. Even if it's a passage that I've read a million times, something new will pop out and you pay attention to that. And you're also listening with what's going on in the world. What's going on in people's lives? How does our story intersect with the story in the Bible? What are the transferable concepts? What can we learn? from the Word of God as it relates to our own lives. And so that begins to come together. I confess I don't write out my sermons. I have them inside of me. I do speak them in advance because I don't want them to go on for 30 minutes. Preaching is an auditory art. People are listening. You listen to how it sounds. Am I conveying this? Do the words fit together well? Do the concepts hold together? And I always have in mind our story in the story. And the sermon should end with people being able to answer the question, so what? What does that mean for me? What am I being called to do? It should call us to some sort of an action. It's not a nice lecture or an entertainment time. It's supposed to help motivate us and move us to some sort of action or change in our lives or whatever. You have a gift to be able to get up and just convey what you want to convey in full sentences without stumbling. It's amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. When you decided to become ordained in the Episcopal Church, were there a lot of other women or were you one of few women or how is that in the Episcopal Church? There were a fair number of women. You know, I had some wonderful role models. Our bishop is a woman. 
that was not a challenge for me. There were other models out there. It's still probably a little disproportionate with men, a few more men than women in the Episcopal Church. But I've only served in two churches. St. David's, the rector was a man and I was, you know, the associate rector. And he was so welcoming of me and grateful for the gifts I could bring and was totally open-handed in all of that. I serve with a wonderful dean, Randy Hollerith, who is very much of the same mold that he welcomes and gives God thanks for the gifts inherent in each one of the clergy at the cathedral. There are six of us full-time, three are women. That's so awesome. Can you share with us maybe a target date for the cathedral to be open? Because I know people will be anxious after hearing this to get down there, not just to see the exhibit of the doves, but (laughs) to experience the majesty of the cathedral and all it has to offer. I don't have a crystal ball, (laughs) but thanks be to God, vaccinations are happening at such a great clip now. And oh my gosh, what a blessing that is for all of us and giving thanks for the scientists and the frontline workers and all the people flying those vaccines all over the country and all over the world. I would hope that we would be able to reopen in some way. It'll probably be phased. We follow CDC guidelines, DC guidelines, and of course our diocesan guidelines. But hopefully early fall, we'll begin to be open a bit. But I would say watch our website. The cathedral has a very active Facebook page. If you're interested in getting information about the cathedral, you can sign up. Just get on a weekly e-newsletter that will let you know about things coming up like some of the programming and everything else. And as I've said, even though our doors are closed, I'm as busy as I was before, (laughs) even busier. Yeah, the website is wonderful. And one of the things I just discovered on the website recently were the pages that you can print and color that are various aspects of the cathedral, whether it's the stained glass windows or the gargoyles you were mentioning, which is really, really fun. But there's so much information on there. And We're just proud of you, Jan, and what you do, and you are so inspirational. And on a personal note, I thank you for your kindness to our family, and I can't wait to get back to the cathedral and bring Tricia down to some of the wonderful programs. That'd be wonderful. And Doro, as you know, I've been so blessed by your family and those relationships. I wouldn't be in Washington, I'm confident, if it hadn't been those early intersections with your parents and serving your dad in our country in the White House was one of the greatest honors of my life. So I'm the one who's blessed. We're blessed too. Thank you, Jan. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. And and thank you for what you're doing with your wonderful business, trying to help people live healthier, more meaningful lives. It makes a difference. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.